to a new section, Romans chapter 5. And the title of our sermon this morning, Implications of Justification, as we take a look at some of the fruits or the consequences or the results of uh, what we've been looking at for several weeks, which is uh, the nuts and bolts of the gospel, how God declares uh, unrighteous sinners righteous in His sight uh, by providing us with the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. So this morning, we'll be looking at about six implications uh, for our lives of the idea and the truth of justification. So I trust that you're there, close to it, Romans 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time, and uh, we'll dive right Let's pray, church. Our Father, um, your Son uh, taught us, um, as he quoted the book of Deuteronomy, that man uh, does not live by bread alone, uh, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God, we pray. Uh, this morning, that we would uh, come to you hungry, uh, that we would come spiritually hungry for you to provide for us um, manna from heaven, as it were, uh, the very living, breathing, powerful word of God. God, may it nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. And we ask you through your Son, Jesus, the bread, uh, the bread of heaven, we ask you in Jesus' name. And all last people together said, well, I think we all know from experience that actions have consequences. That is, decisions that we make uh, have implications, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. So take, for instance, the story of the Seattle man, sort of a petty thief who one night thought it would be a good idea to try to steal some gasoline from a motorhome via siphoning. And so he attached the siphon uh, into the vehicle, the motorhome, in the middle of the night. And, of course, he started to work. Um, and just a few minutes later, the police found him uh, shortly after riding in pain uh, in the street. Well, it seems as if he had attached the hose all right, but he had attached it to the wrong place. And so he had attached it not to the gasoline tank, but to the motorhome sewage tank. And, of course, the owner was too busy laughing, so he, he, he agreed not to decline, uh, to decline the press charge. You know, decisions we make have implications. And in this case, the implications of the man's actions were, of course, negative. But as we turn the page to Romans chapter 5, we will see the implications or the consequences of God's justifying act on repentant, faith-filled sinners are, in fact, many and they are very positive indeed. So just by way of quick review, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has uh, taken great effort to show us our need for the gospel, our need to be declared right before a holy God. And then starting in uh, chapter 3, around verse 21, and all the way into chapter 4, Paul has spoken of God's provision of that righteousness. So we've been examining the idea of justification. And now in chapter 5, he begins to show us the fruits of justification, practically speaking, in our lives. And I see about six implications for the justification of the believer. Six consequences, six results. In fact, the commentator Sandy says they are blissful consequences of justification. And the first is found in verse 1. So let's turn there. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Implication Number one is this. Paul says, number one, we have peace with God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to begin by noticing that Paul asserts the Christian's absolute assurance of our justification, the imputed righteousness. Notice the past tense. Since we have been justified. So friends, if you are in Christ, that is true of you. You have been justified. When God declares the believing sinner righteous, it is a done deal, never to be reversed, never to be reneged upon. And so since this is true, Paul says, implication number one, we have peace with God. Now, oftentimes we think of the word peace and we think about our feelings. We think about a subjective emotion. But this peace with God is not a subjective feeling, but rather it is an objective reality. In other words, God, his wrath is no longer against us. And we are no longer in rebellion against him. This peace is not the peace of God. No, it is peace with God. We are born, we have learned in chapters 1 and 2, at enmity. In other words, we are born hostile to God. We are at enmity with Him. And in a sense, He is at enmity with us. His wrath is against us. We are rebels against Him. But at conversion, at justification, a ceasefire, if you will, has been brought. I want us to think about how the world might think of this term, peace. Um, I don't know if you've ever had, maybe been in a conversation with someone, and they say something like, you know what, Um, I'm at peace with God. Or they say something like, "Uh, I have made my peace with God. What do they typically mean? Well, I think they typically mean that some sort of circumstance has come into their, their life, some hardship, some trial, and they were, as a result, what? They were angry at God, right? They were angry at Him, but now, for whatever reason, they've come to the place where we have, uh, they've made their peace with God, right? I'm at peace with God. They mean, they were once angry at Him, but no longer are we angry at Him. Friends, that's not what Paul's talking about here, right? In other words, it's not that all the problems that we have with God are solved. No, he says, all the problems that God has with us are solved in the gospel. I really like how Pastor Tony Miranda puts it on this point. He says, I point this out because a lot of people think that the primary purpose of religion is to give therapeutic feelings of peace. And so they say things like, well, I'm glad Christianity gives that to you, uh, but I get those feelings from yoga or meditation or taking long walks or, and this is where it gets funny, I think, or eating kale or drinking bourbon, or rubbing essential oils on your lymph nodes, or whatever. But more importantly, he says, more important than feelings of peace is whether you and I are actually uh, at peace with God, right? Are we at war with Him, or has a peace treaty been brought? The first implication, Paul says, is that He is no longer hostile to us, and we are no longer hostile to Him. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friend... The question is, is that true of you? Have you been brought into a relationship with God through the gospel, and as a result, we have peace with God? Well, a second implication follows rather quickly in verse 2. Implication number 2 is not only do we have peace with God, but we have access into standing 
in grace. We have access into this gracious standing. Notice verse 2. Paul says, through him, referring to Jesus, through him we also, so here's another implication, through him we also obtained access by faith, justifying faith, into this grace in which we stand. Uh, maybe to help understand what Paul is talking about here by way of illustration. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family and I were in Texas, and we were uh, in College Station visiting my mom and dad and my sister and her family. And my sister lives in a housing addition on the south edge of College Station called Castlegate. And so uh, I, I guess with the word castle in the name, they sort of wanted to go with like this English medieval kind of theme. And so each neighborhood in Castlegate, when you go into that neighborhood, it's called a realm. And so you're, you're driving into a neighborhood, and for instance, you enter in the realm of Windsor. So now you're in the realm or territory of Windsor, or you're entering into the realm or sphere of Wentworth. Friends, that's the image here. The image is that the Christian uh, has passed into the realm, or if you will, into the kingdom uh, of grace, right? We have moved from the realm or kingdom. Paul is going to argue just next in chapter 5, the, the realm of Adam, where sin and death rule because we are rebels against God. That is one realm, and we are all born into that realm. But Paul says now we have been transferred out of that realm into the realm which he calls grace. It's a realm or a kingdom where Jesus is king and faith and righteousness Abound. He calls this territory grace. He says we have gained access through justification into this, into this grace. As Paul earlier has referred to grace as the source of our justification, now grace here is sort of like this is our privileged position. It's our privileged position of acceptance. You can, you can think of it as we have favored status with God. We now are in the realm of grace. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we get there? Like Paul says, we have obtained access into this once foreign territory. How do we get there? Well, he uses a, a real specific term. He says we have obtained access to that realm. It's actually a word elsewhere that is used of a king granting permission of, uh, of a subject to enter into his presence. In other words, you can't just sort of waltz in uninvited, right? You can't just walk into the presence of a king. You have to have access. And Paul says in the gospel, as a result of our justification, we have been granted access into the very presence of a king. Sort of like maybe an exclusive party, if you will, or an exclusive event where you might only not have to be invited, but you have to sort of show, right, here's my invitation, I'm on the guest list. I know you guys probably go to parties like that all the time. I don't know if I've ever been to one like that, but that's the idea, right? Our name has to be on the list. And then notice, notice that once we are, are in this realm, Paul says we stand. You notice that word? He says we have access by faith into this realm, and once we're in the realm of grace, what do we do? We stand there. It's the image of permanency. So, for instance, if someone says, I've made up my mind on this issue, I'm taking a stand, what do they, what do they mean? 
They mean they're not moving, right? They're immovable. They're unchanging. And that is the wonderful truth here for every Christian, that we can enjoy a secure and a continuing relationship with God. In other words, it's not just that God has sort of put his weapons down. It's not just that there's a ceasefire, right? We're no longer at war with God and he's no longer at war with us. But here, in implication too, Paul wants us to know that we are invited into his home. That, that God not only says, you're no longer my enemy, but I want you to be a friend. We're no longer f- just forgiven, uh, legally declared innocent, credited with Jesus' righteousness. No, he brings us into his kingdom. He makes us a part of his own. And so thus far, two implications. Paul says, when you are justified, number one, you have peace with God. Number two, you are you, you enter into this realm of grace and you stand there. But not only that, notice the end of verse two. As we work our way towards the end of verse two, we see yet a third implication of justification. And namely, it is what Paul says, uh, the hope of the glory of God. So I'll start in verse two. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And, so yet another implication, and we rejoice, literally it's boast, we rejoice in hope, in hope of the glory of God. And so Paul says now that we have been justified, we can boast, we can rejoice, not like the religious people that he spoke of earlier. You may remember that Paul said the Jews, they they boast in their religious heritage, they boast in the law. So Paul says, no, if you're going to boast in something, boast in this, right? Rejoice in the fact that once you have been justified, we have a certain hope. Now, in our world, in our, our language, hope doesn't necessarily mean what the Bible hope, a biblical hope means. So when I say, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon because I want to mow the yard, that means, well, we, we don't want that to happen, right? But biblical hope is a, a certainty of what God has promised, right? What God has promised, he will bring about. And so Paul says that the third implication of our justification is that we know for sure that God is going to do something in us in the future, and he's going to do something in the entire created world in the future. And he sort of summarizes it in a nutshell in the phrase, the glory of God. In other words, there's going to be a day when the glory of God reigns and rules and is on display chiefly, in his mind, I think, is in us. In fact, we'll get there in a matter of months. But in chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, he calls this hope of glory being glorified with Jesus. He calls this hope the glory that is to be revealed in us. And he calls this glory the redemption, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he says, when you are justified, when you have uh, been made right with God, you can be sure that he will finish the job and your uh, body will be resurrected and be filled with the very glory of God. Friends, that is hope, right? I think he calls our future resurrection to a perfect body, an eternal body, a sinless body, a glorified body, a hope that we can look forward to now. I don't know about you, uh, but as I turned 40 a year or two ago, over the proverbial hill, right, what, what, what once goes up must go 
down, right? And so this sounds better and better as I get older, right? The, the idea of resurrection. The truth is that all of our bodies, whether young or old, are frail. Our bodies are broken. We are subject to pain and corruption. And not to mention the sin of the flesh, which we battle against in our world. Creation is broken, right? And so Paul says we can rejoice in the sure hope that one day all will be set right. I really like how D.A. Carson puts it. Maybe you can uh, understand or sympathize with this. He says, I'm not suffering from anything. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. And that's a great hope, right? And it's true. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. It's the hope of glory. Dr. Carson introduces for us um, a fourth implication. A fourth implication. And it's found in verses 3 through 8. And it is that not only can we rejoice uh, in the fact that we have uh, been uh, brought uh, at peace with God, not only do we have this standing in grace, not only do we look forward uh, to a future time when there will be no pain and no suffering and all will be as it should be, but Paul says, quite astonishingly, that not only that, but we can also rejoice now, even in our suffering. He says justification not only gives joy and a sure hope for a painless and perfect eternal future, but it equips us to rejoice in the pain that we're experiencing even now. Dr. Keller asserts this. He says your belief in the gospel is measured by your ability to have joy and suffering. In other words, how deeply we understand the gospel will be demonstrated in how much joy we have in suffering. Notice verses 3 and 4. Not only that, Paul just implication after implication, right? Not only that, but we rejoice or boast in our suffering. Why, I ask. Why or how, you might ask. Knowing, he says... That suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So the question is, how can we find joy in suffering? Answer, three positive outcomes. Three potential positive outcomes, which Dr. Kruger calls the chain reaction of suffering. I like that idea. The chain reaction of suffering. Sort of like, uh, maybe you've done this before, you've set up all the dominoes in a row, right? So all the dominoes are snaking around. And what happens? All you have to do is touch the first domino, and what? Click, 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 right? All, they all go. It's a chain reaction, right? That's sort of the idea here. And notice the first domino to fall is, uh, is what? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance. Uh, this is an athletic term. It's an athletic imagery. It's the idea of you're exercising, you're playing a sport, you're running, and it hurts. But instead of giving up, you keep going, right? It's, it's the idea of a team uh, of a team doing wind sprints at the end of practice so the coach can say, you can play through the pain, right? You don't have to give up. I like what John Piper writes on this point in his lengthy but really good book, Future Breaks. He says, until hardship comes into our lives, especially for the sake of Christ, we do not experience the extent and the depth of our own faith. 
Until times get hard, we do not taste and really know if we are fair-weather Christians. And so he says, suffering comes, and as a result, we endure, right? We don't give up. And then there's another domino. What's the next domino to fall? He says, and endurance produces character. The, the idea of character here is the idea of a metal that has been refined uh, through the fire, through the furnace, and has had impurities burned away so that then you could say it has character. It has been proven dependable. It has been proven reliable. And so what Paul is saying is that when we endure, right, hardship comes, we don't give up the faith, we don't blame God, we keep going, we're faithful, and then that actually demonstrates that our faith is both proven and our faith is being refined. Our character is being sharpened, if you will. Maybe you're familiar with the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. It's written by a guy by the name of John Rippon. And one of the verses goes this way. Maybe you're familiar with it. He speaks to this reality. The song goes, When through fiery trials your pathways shall lie. This is like God speaking to his children. When through fiery trials your pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. He says, the flame shall not hurt you. I only design, you know it, your dross to consume and your gold to refine. And that's what Paul's saying here. We endure, there's a refinement of our character. God shapes us through the fire of affliction. Has he done that for you, friends, in the past? Can you think about a trial in your life where God is shaping you, testing you, burning off the dross of sin or, or character. Maybe he's doing that even right now as we speak. Paul says if that's the case, we can rejoice. We can have joy even in the pain because God is testing us. He's approving us. He's refining us. But there's a, there's a final domino in this chain reaction, and it's called hope. Endurance produces character. And then he says character produces Hope. Have we seen this word hope just recently? Lisa, yes. Yes, back in verse 2, right? And so now we're back to where we started. The hope of glory, right? And so what Paul is saying is that the hope of glory, the hope of a future resurrection, actually can grow and should grow in our life as we learn to rejoice in suffering. John Piper again connects the dots for us well. He says, we learn through pain that God is faithful. And that our faith is real. He says the people who look most earnestly and steadfastly to the hope of glory are those who have had the comforts of this life stripped away through tribulations. Or as yet another old hymn puts it, when all around my soul gives way. You know how this one goes? When all around my soul gives way. What? He then is all my Hope, right? Hope and stay. And so Paul says we can rejoice not only in a future glory, but we can actually find joy now in suffering because of what God is doing. But now, as we turn to verse 5, it may seem as if Paul is sort of going on a rabbit trail away from the idea of rejoicing and suffering. But I don't think he's doing that. I think as we turn to look at verse 5, I think Paul is undergirding. He's, he's showing us how uh, this, this idea of rejoicing and suffering, he's undergirding, he's supporting 
that reality with two reasons why we can be absolutely certain as we suffer that the hope of future glory is certain. Our hope in future resurrection glory from verse 2, enhanced by suffering, he says it won't fail. Notice as we read verse 5. Notice the connection. And, he's not moving on, he's just moving deeper, right? And, he says, that hope which we have as a result of justification, that hope that grows as we go through suffering, that hope that is growing in us, it won't be put to shame. Sort of like a young boy who's excited because his team is playing that night. And he hopes, he believes that his team will win the big game. But alas, his team loses. And so what does he feel? Well, his hope, in a sense, has been put to shame, right? Uh, his, that which he put his hope in has not transpired. He's disappointed when they fail. Paul says, friends, um, our hope of future glory uh, will never be that way will never be put to shame. It will come to pass. Paul, how do we know? How do we know that once we're justified, that we're actually going to reach uh, resurrection, glory? Well, two reasons, notice. Reason number one, it's because uh, God, the Holy Spirit, has poured out uh, the Father's love in our hearts. That's reason number one. And then number two, it's because God has demonstrated His love for us uh, in the cross of Christ. Two reasons. Notice verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Why, Paul? Why will this hope not be put to shame? Because, number one, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In other words, at conversion, at justification, at regeneration, the Holy Spirit himself comes to reside in us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are given the Holy Spirit. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does, amongst numerous things, is that He continually, sort of like Niagara Falls, always is, is running. The Holy Spirit rains down the, the love of God the Father on us and in our hearts. In other words, this is an experiential thing. This is something that the Christian experiences in our heart. We were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and because of that, we have a, a subjective feeling. God loves me. God loves me. He's, he's given me His Spirit. And so we know that our future glory will not be in vain because our spirit, in a sense, testifies with His Holy Spirit when we are His children. But, but sometimes, if we're honest, if I'm honest, when we're suffering... Sometimes we need something more than subjective experience, because subjective experience comes and goes, right? Which leads us then to the second reason, Paul says, why we won't be put to shame, why our hope won't be put to shame. And it's because of God's love given to us in the Son. Notice verse 6. These are familiar words to, to many Christians. For while we were still weak, at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are glorious verses. And I wish I could take a whole sermon to, to, to expound them, but just three things 
things I want to point out here. Notice just the extravagance of God's love for us in three aspects. Number one, notice how God's love is extravagant because of the object of His love. In other words, whom is God loving? Is God loving people who are naturally good and gracious and kind and people who love Him? No. Who is it that God demonstrates His love towards? Well, just look in those verses, and I'll point out in verse 6, we were weak. In verse 6, we were ungodly. In verse 8, we were sinners. And if you jump ahead to verse 10, he says we were his enemies. In other words, it's not like God looked down and, see, and saw, oh, these people love me. They really want me. I'm going to send my son to die for them. No, we hated him. We hated him. And he said, I'm going to send my son for you. So the object of God's love shows his extravagance. But not only that, notice the high price. Notice the high price of God's love. In verse 6, for while we were still weak, Christ what? Christ died. He died. Notice in verse 8 at the tail end, Christ died for us. And so the idea is that Jesus paid a, a crazy high price, his very life, in order for God to love very undesirable objects, right? Those of us who hated him. It's sort of like if you were to, uh, to, to be in the fixer-upper market and you saw this house and it was old and outdated and it was, it was run down and it's not worth very much and you say, I want that house because I know what I can make it into. But even though they want $20,000, you say, I'm going to pay $5 million. I'd say you're crazy, right? Don't do that because of the object. Christ died for those who were weak, who were ungodly, who were sinners, who were his enemy. He prayed and paid an extremely high price to get an old fixture on Verse, uh, Notice in verse 8. Notice God's extravagant love in the timing of it, right? He says, for while we were still weak. And then in verse 8, for while we were still sinners. In other words, it's not like God waited for us to repent. God waited for us to come to Him. No, He loved us even while we were His enemies. And so Paul undergirds this hope. He says, we can rejoice even in suffering because we know it's going to create endurance. It's going to not only create endurance, but it's going to, it's going to refine us and it's going to grow our hope of glory. Paul, how do we know that that, that hope is sure? Well, you, you know it because the Holy Spirit is inside you and you know it. He says, just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. And so Dr. Carson, again, connects the dots for us. As we look at the cross... And as we rejoice in suffering, he writes this. He says, in the darkest night of the soul. Friends, maybe you're there. Maybe you're there. Maybe you can identify with those words. In the darkest night of the soul. He says, in the darkest night of the soul, we know Christ crucified. He says, Christians have learned that when there seems to be no other evidence of God's love, they cannot escape the cross. And so we have a fourth implication. We can rejoice, he says, even in our sufferings. But he's not done. He piles them on. Notice in verses 9 and 10, we see yet another implication of justification. This one, it's, it's like the hope of glory in that it's future-oriented. It's future-oriented, but it highlights God's judgment being avoided rather than his blessings being enjoyed. Implication number five, we will be saved from God's wrath. Notice verse nine, since therefore 
we have now been justified by his blood. So he returns back. Here's another implication, right? Same language. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Okay, what Paul? Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He explains. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I think verses 9 and 10 answers these questions. This implication answers the question, will this righteous standing of justification, will it last forever? Or will it stand the test on judgment day? Because in chapter 2, Paul has said that there will be a day of judgment. And so Paul, I think, is now answering the question, will this justification be sufficient? Will it withstand the wrath of God? And the answer is a resounding yes. And you may have noticed that he uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. A greater from, uh, an argument from, well, if God does this, which is the greater thing, then he most certainly will do that, which is the lesser thing. Notice, since, much more. If, much more. So, uh, by way of illustration, uh, it's been a number of years ago. Uh, but in 2003, we had a soldier by the name of Jessica Lynch. And she was captured in Iraq. You may remember the story there. And there was a rescue effort that took place, I'm sure, at great cost and at great risk uh, to save her life. And they did. They, they saved her life. And they pulled her out of Iraq, I believe it was. And so let's just imagine in our minds this scenario. So there she is. She's on the helicopter. And she's being lifted out of the foreign country. Or maybe she's on the airplane. And she's flying across the ocean. And she's going home. She's been rescued. But she begins to wonder. Are they going to take care of me at home? I mean, I'm really hungry. I haven't had anything to eat in days. Are they going to feed me? Or... I have a broken rib. I have a broken bone. Am I going to get sufficient medical care? And so she begins to wonder, are, are these things going to be taken care of? And so she, she calls the officer over. And she says, officer, um, are, are you going to feed me? Officer, are you going to care for my wounds? What is that guy or girl going to say, that officer? Of course, right? Don't you just know all of this that we did to rescue you? That's the greater thing. And so it's a small thing to feed you to give you medical care. That's the argument that Paul is making. He says here, if God does this, if he started it, he's going to finish it, right? If he already did the harder thing, if he declared the unrighteous righteous at the cost of his son's life, he says we can trust him to do the easier thing, to save us from his wrath on judgment day. In other words, if he reconciled us while we hated him, while we were enemies, he reconciled us. How much more now as Christians that we are reconciled, how much more uh, will he uh, complete the salvation? If, if by his son's death, if we were declared righteous before God, how much now that Jesus is alive, notice the idea there, death and life, how much more that now that Jesus is alive, interceding for us, chapter 8, verse 34, how much more now will we be saved by Jesus' life? And so he says, Christian, you can be absolutely sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And that is great news. But there's a, there's a sick 
a final implication, and it's found in verse 11. He says, we can rejoice or boast in our reconciled relationship with God. Verse 11. More than that, he just piles on implications. More than that, we also rejoice in God. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through what God Christ has done, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Uh, he's introduced the idea of the image of reconciliation earlier in the text, but I think it comes to a head here. He says we find joy, or literally we boast in God, because now he uses this relational term, this relational idea that two parties that were once at odds with one another have been brought together, right? They have been reconciled. I think Paul wants us to understand that salvation, God's rescue of us, it begins with justification. But there's way more than that, right? It begins with justification. This legal declaration from the judge, not guilty, you are righteous. And that can be sort of stiff, if you will, and impersonal, though it's really important. But he goes beyond that, and he introduces this, this, this idea of, no, you've been reconciled to a person, a personal relationship. You've been reconciled to God. That relationship that was once broken, now we can enjoy it. And so, for instance, if, maybe if you're married, uh, uh, likely at least once in your married life, you've had a fight. Once, right? At least once. You've had a conflict, and hopefully uh, you resolve the conflict. There is repentance. I forgive you all of that, right? And so at some point, you've reconciled, right? At some point, uh, that's behind you, and you have reconciled. And that's a sweet thing, right? To be at conflict at odds, and then the relationship is renewed. There's, there's a sweetness involved in being reconciled. Though I'm not a country uh, a fan, per se, there's a song that keeps going through my mind on this point. I don't even know who sings it, but it's called Two of a Kind, Working on a Full House. And, and I think at some point the lyric says something like this. He says, sometimes we fight just so we can make up. And, and I thought about that. In other words, well, they're just going to fight because there's joy in reconciliation. That's what Paul says here. There's joy in our reconciled relationship with God. And I just want to point out as we sort of land this plane, um, three times in this section, three times, Paul calls us to rejoice in gospel implications. So much so that Martin Luther calls this section the most happiest text in all of Romans. Honestly, I think chapter 8 might have an argument with that because that's a pretty good chapter. But, but regardless, he's noticing that, that in this section, it's about rejoicing, right? We rejoice in all of gospel, the gospel implications for us. The, go, the gospel of justification is a gospel of joy in God, rejoicing in God. So, so the John Piper can write, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of all the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and Him so that so that we might find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring His infinite beauty. And I think Romans would affirm that. And so we'll close with this question. 
sometimes we need to ask ourselves as Christians, sometimes we need to ask ourselves if you're not a Christian, what do we find our joy? What do we find the most joy in? In other words, what, what is the chief cause of our rejoicing? Because I think the truth is, we can tell a lot about a person by what they rejoice in, by what makes them happy. If we're most excited about a nice dinner out, or if we find the most joy about a rigorous exercise routine, 400 calories down, or uh, our kids getting great grades at school, or our business growing, or our nest egg is stable, or whatever it might be. If those things bring us the most joy, then we might need to check ourselves. Because joy, the most joy, is found in God. Conversely, you can find it, you can, you can tell a lot about a person about what they're not excited about, right? What they're not excited about. And so if we don't find joy in our relationship with God, opening the scriptures in the morning or in the evening, if it doesn't bring joy to our hearts to talk with our Creator and Redeemer, if it doesn't bring joy to, to do family devotionals or go to Bible study or to gather together to sing with God's people, then it reveals something about what our boast is. It reveals something about what we love. And ultimately, it reveals who our functional God really is. And so Paul is calling us, Christian, rejoice in the gospel, rejoice in God. Here are six implications, six implications as to what it means to be a justified sinner. Would you pray with me as we prepare to respond and sing? Our God and our Father, um, we thank you that you have made peace with us. And God, we recognize that we don't deserve it because we have run from you. We have rebelled against you, and God, we deserve uh, your wrath. We deserve a separation. We deserve not to be at peace with you, for you are altogether holy, and we are altogether not. Thank you, God, for making uh, a way of peace through the cross of Christ. God, thank you that you have justified us by faith, and there are many fruits of that. God, we now stand. We, we take our stand in this grace. We have access to you. God, we want to grow in our relationship with you. We want to be close to you. We want to be intimate with you. We want to worship you. We want to have joy in you. God, we rejoice and thank you that you have accomplished this reconciliation. We praise you also that we can rejoice not despite our sufferings, but even in our sufferings. We thank you, God, that our suffering is is producing endurance, and that endurance is producing character in us. And God, you are uh, producing hope. So God, I pray that you would um, produce these things in us and cause hope to rise more and more in our lives. God, a hope that won't put us to shame, a hope that will raise us up from the dead one day and glorify us with you, a hope that all creation will be made new. And so we rejoice in all of these things this morning. And God, chiefly we ask that you would help us to rejoice in you. And so our Father, now as we respond in song, help us to sing joyfully and loudly for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up.